This is Emily Penn, and you're listening to the RUF Ole Miss Podcast on October 17th, 2007. Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its head and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand, or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six. Six. This is God's Word. Bear with me tonight. Tonight is like drinking out of a fire hydrant. We're going to have to go so quickly. But bear with me. There are few more sentimental stories that Jesus tells in the Bible than the story of the prodigal son. There the ungrateful son takes and wastes his father's inheritance but later on comes to his senses and returns home to the arms of a welcoming father. But the story is actually not just about one son, but about two sons. Because there is an elder brother who stays home, 
An elder brother who did everything that the father told him to do. And yet, the language of the parable suggests, resented his father the entire time. The father even has to beg the older brother to come in and join the celebration for his lost brother. But what I want you to see tonight is that these two brothers in the famous story of the prodigal son represent, I think, two different ways in which people run away from God. You see, the younger brother runs away from God by means of his irreligion. He rejects God. He rationalizes Him away. He makes his own rules in life. But see, the elder brother, though, is just as lost. The elder brother runs away from God by means of his religion. That is, he follows rules that deep inside he secretly hates. His mouth, mouth's insecure prayers never convinced that he's worthy enough. He has lots of service to God, but absolutely no love of God. The early church father, Tertullian, commenting on this very parable, said that just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the, cross of, so the gospel of Jesus Christ is crucified between these two opposite errors. To run away from God through your irreligion and your rebellion, but also to run away from God by trying to do enough good things to keep Him liking you. Now look, the reason why I mentioned that story is because I would like to approach Revelation 13 tonight as if it is the cosmic spiritual reality behind the story of the prodigal son. That's my premise. Because in chapter 12, we saw Satan. If you'll remember last week's discussion, the great dragon cast out of heaven. And he's furious because he knows that his time is short. And human history entered, at least at that time, into a period of suffering, a period of struggle that John referred to as three and a half years. A metaphor we saw last week of the suffering that God's people experience throughout every single age. But tonight, we find that the dragon does not work alone. Throughout this passage, we find that the dragon is aping God and showing himself to have three persona. He is the dragon. He is the beast from the sea. But he is also the beast from the land. An unholy trinity. Vern Poitras believes that this is a major theme in the book of Revelation. That is an extended look at how the devil counterfeits all of the things that is God. And so I want to look tonight at these two beasts and see how they might relate to us in terms of the story of the prodigal son. Bear with me. First of all, the beast out of the sea. Let's take a look at these images that come to us. The first and most obvious evidence of this beast is that he comes up out of the sea. Now this is very important because in the Bible's literature, the sea does not mean some uh, uh, hydrological entity called water in a large space. <laughs> The sea was actually a symbol in the Jewish mind. The sea was a symbol of chaos. Throughout the Bible, because the Jewish people were not a seafaring people, the water was a threatening place. It was a dangerous place. It was a place of chaos and of evil. So we find that this beast is one who arises out of chaos, who is himself the embodiment of that evil. He has heads and horns and crowns to show that he comes with power and he comes with authority. 
We find in verse 5 that he exercised authority for what? 42 months. That is, three and a half years. What does that mean? Well, we saw last week that he's going to be working throughout the period of the church age in which we find ourselves right now. The Bible says that he's full of blasphemy and full of violence. So the character of the first beast, I would suggest to you tonight, is this. You can tell when the first beast attacks because it comes through direct, very concrete, historical opposition to the followers of the Lamb. We see the beast at work whenever we see opposition to God's people in an obvious way, in an outward way. But then we find something in verse 3 that's very curious. Because we find that this beast actually receives a deadly wound. Did you see that? But suddenly the wound was healed. That's very interesting. The Greek translation is actually nowhere near as vague as the translation you have in the ESV on your handouts tonight. Because it's not simply that the beast seems to have a wound and died, but it says that he really died. I think this is in one way, a way in which the beast is trying to have the same resurrection power as the lamb. In other words, it's trying to impress people with its ability to simply come back. But I think that's all this passage means. You see, the beast that comes up out of the sea is one who will rise to power, who will take great authority and do extraordinary destruction from time to time, and then he'll pass away. But you know what? He'll come back. In many ways, I think John is helping us to understand the last 2,000 years of church history. Because he's coming along and saying that from the beginning of history, pagan, immoral societies and cultures will rise in opposition to the people of God. And they will bring persecution against the people of God. And there will be all kinds of destruction that goes on where even the people of God will experience that suffering. But suddenly, there will be a mighty death blow. Something will happen that will wipe them away. But it will be back. You can rest assured that no matter what kind of damage is done to that destructive beast, he'll be back. Whether it be sort of Egypt imprisoning the children of Israel, or perhaps Assyria carting off the, Israel, the Jewish people into captivity, they'll be back. And even though Rome came along and during the time of the writing of this book was horribly persecuting uh, uh, the Christian people, they were destroyed, but they've come back. Hitler had his third Reich, but it was destroyed, but it's coming back. And the truth of the matter is, is the exact same thing will happen to our culture if we continue to worship someone other than God. We will fall ourselves if we're unable to follow God. Now look, what in the world could this possibly have to do with me? I want to make for you tonight sort of a broad application and then a narrow application. In other words, I want to try to apply this in the macro sense, from the big picture, and then I want to see if it, what it has to do with our lives individually. First of all, I believe these pictures come to us and talk about the suffering that Christians will always face 
It is very easy to look back through history and see every single godless, anti-Christ regime that rises itself against God's people is a manifestation of the beast out of the sea. That's what I'm saying. You can see the beast out of the sea at work if you just take even the most casual glance of the last 2,000 years of church history. There is no mistaking the fact that the beast rises up to oppose God's people and to wreak havoc in the midst of God's creation. There's a part of me that wonders if the reason why the beast out of the sea is so kind of foreign to our understanding is because, quite frankly, our nation has not suffered. For most of us, we are upper to upper, upper middle class people. And because of that, we've never seen the kind of drastic suffering that is the part of the daily warp and woof of people's lives all across the world. Go to any third world country and they will testify to the fact that the beast out of the sea is still quite at work. Even though sometimes he will ebb and sometimes he will flow, he's always working. That's the big picture sort of application. But I think it says something to us as individuals as well. Because John is trying to give these churches scattered throughout Asia Minor something they can use to get through the suffering. First, notice like we did last week how big of a theme there is in this passage of God's sovereignty. We saw there in verses um, 7 through 10 that the authority that was given to the beast to do these things was given to them. Given to them, we find, first of all, by the dragon. But who did we see last week gave the authority to the dragon? My friends, we find that God is once again, even over the beast out of the sea, even over the suffering of his people, sovereign over every bit of it. And I recognize that that's incredibly unsettling for most of us. And we don't know how to put those two things together. But as I argued with you last week, it simply means that our suffering is not without purpose. What it means is, is when you begin to go through times of personal heartbreak, sometimes crushing personal heartbreak, you don't have to be sort of burdened by the extra fear that somehow God has His hands off the wheel of your personal history. We have a God given here who looks and says, I'm in control of all of this. The question's why you may not get answered, but I will say this, I'll be with you through it all. That's what John is saying. But I think secondly, he says it there in verse 10 at the very end, that this calls for patience and endurance. This is a huge deal. I remember having a very wise person in my life when I was in high school and going through, or excuse me, when I was in college and going through a very difficult time, a very difficult personal time, sort of all taking place up here inside my head, who looked at me and I kept asking why, why is this happening? Why is God allowing these things to happen to me? And he said to me, you know something less? He said, I think there's certain lessons in life that are not so much meant to be learned as they are endured. In other words, is it not possible that God is simply doing something in you to teach you how to wait on Him? We have to wait to learn to be patient in the process of God doing what He's doing. But what I want you to recognize lastly as we apply it to our own hearts is that following the beast of the sea is quite easy. It's quite easy. And in many ways a whole lot easier for those of us in this room than we very well might know. Because, and the reason why is the same reason why it was easier for the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. Many of you have not yet figured this out. (laughs) 
that the destruction and the outright rebellion, to look at the way in which I was raised and to look at sort of the, the godly influences in my life, And to look at him and say, not only am I going to reject you, but I'm going to do everything I can in my life to show you that I don't get a rip about what you say. Many of you have not yet figured out that one of the reasons why, since you have come to school, you have fallen into the moral abyss that you have, is not necessarily because you've worked out all of the moral and metaphysical reasons for why God is so ridiculous and Christianity a sham. No, quite honestly, we find that our reasons, according to the Bible, for pursuing a life of rebellion against God end up being a means of running away from Him, running away from a God that I want to suggest to you tonight that you know is there, that you know is there. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that there is a, there's a, a heart inside of the person who hates God, who is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Holding it down, finding a way to look and say, I will run my own life, thank you very much. And what we find here in the pages of the book of Revelation is that those kinds of actions, a lifestyle that's marked by the next happy fun party around the corner, is according to John, alignment with the beast himself. And with every sort of drunken revelry that we put on ourselves, we raise our voices in praise to the beast and we say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? My friends, the beast that comes out of the sea is a beast of chaos. And it's the kinds of things that you see every single week in and every single week out on this very campus. And people are swamped by it. (laughs) And many people follow right behind it. And the deception of the beast goes on. So that's the first thing. We see the influence of the beast that rises up out of the sea, out of the chaos. But there is a second one. It appears in the second one that the dragon can either play bad cop in the first sense, but he can also in the second sense play good cop. First of all, let's go back to the symbols here. Notice this this beast this beast comes out of the land. That is coming out of the land or out of the earth suggests uh, and, uh, and apparent stability. There's something a little more firm about th- what this one does. And we find in verses 13 and 14 that his main tool, the main way in which the second beast, the beast out of the land, works, is through deception. You see, whereas the first beast comes and assaults God's people overtly with a concrete opposition, the second one comes in covertly. By tricking God's people, tricking them into thinking that He is true. He's not a persecutor necessarily, He's a deceiver. He comes in to make you think that you're headed in one direction when you're headed into another. And folks, what we have here then is a huge twin temptation for the church. A huge temptation for the church. Again, we can apply this both in the broad sense and in the narrow sense. That is a a macro application and a micro application. Look, think about this. In the big picture, what John is saying is, is for the rest of church history, there will be a persecution that doesn't necessarily come from the outside in. The sort of morally rebellious person who is all up in your face. But there is also a rebellion that will come from the inside out. 
That is, there will be an attempt on a regular basis, listen, listen, covertly to undermine what the church is doing from within. Look, y'all, do you realize how much ink is spilled in the New Testament (laughs) trying to warn God's people from accepting a version of Christianity that's not actually Christianity? Do you realize how much there is? Go take a quick flip through the book of Galatians where Paul is damning people to hell if they twist this message or take the message of purity of faith in Jesus Christ and turn it into something that, it, that it's not. Look, the faith that we have as Christians, listen very carefully, can never be mistaken for some kind of goofy gullibility. Well, God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And the truth of the matter is, there is such a thing as someone who can get Christianity wrong. Bear with me, just for a second. You're getting angry. Bear with me. And the reason why I've got to put this this way is because of the spirit of your age. (laughs) There are a few things I think that I could say from up here tonight that are more offensive to you than this one thought. That you might actually (gasps) say that someone was wrong. All I'm trying to tell you is that in the Bible... It's done all the time. And there's even guaranteed that for the rest of the time of the church, there will be ideas from the inside that will try to make Christianity be something that it's not. Now look, we live in a time when divisions in worldwide Christianity are thought to be her greatest weakness. And quite honestly, that's probably very true. I'll be honest with you, it's very difficult sometimes to stare down the embarrassment that comes. When somebody challenges you and says, you know, even you Christians can't agree what the Bible teaches. Why in the world should I believe it? I'm going to be honest with you. If you're a skeptic tonight who's ever said that, I'm with you. That's embarrassing. And every Christian ought to be troubled by the lack of unity in the world. But the truth of the matter is, for some of us, we've glossed over those struggles because of a spirit of the age that hates the ideas of absolutes at all. You recognize that, don't you? For many of you, you come to college and you sit through your first world civ class or your first history class as it looks at values and morality throughout history and you swallow relativism whole. And by the way, there's a huge irony to becoming a deep uh, uh, sort of in-your-bones relativist, by the way. Because the truth of the matter is, is people who look and talk about religion, there there can't be one religion that contains all the truth. Well, then why should I believe your version of religion over another person? It ends up being quite arrogant to assume that you're the only one who has understood all religions in such a way as to find one answer to all the philosophical questions. The spirit of the age in being wildly relativistic, it kind of eats its own tail if if you see that. But to be honest with you, there's another version of relativism that even comes among people who profess to follow Christianity and are willing to embrace, on some level, Christianity's uniqueness. Because these people just can't stand the thought that there would be any controversy in the church that might actually bring them into conflict with other seemingly sincere believing people. I mean, who am I to say that my upbringing was wrong when they taught that the Bible meant such and such, we say? Why would I ever want to change churches from the one in which I was brought in my upbringing? Look, and that's a complicated question. I'm not denying that. 
I'm simply wanting to set the beast from the land in front of you and say that you have to acknowledge that his mere existence will suggest that the people of God will always have to be defending the word from error. Period. And I know for many of you, you come from religious traditions, which, which, which we ought to be horribly, incredibly grateful for. Which look and say, you know what? Can't we all just get along? And there needs to be a lot of that in our gut. We need to long for the unity of the church. But my friends, we do not long for the unity of the church for unity's sake. We long for the unity of, of the church to be a unity around the truth. And what that means is that we're going to have to go to work. (laughs) It means that there has to be a generation of Christians who rise up and are willing to educate themselves. Who are willing to immerse themselves long enough in our Bibles to grasp its message and to grasp those things which are absolutely necessary to our existence. And the tragedy is there's some of you in this room that are going, please, that's already been tried. Has it? I would suggest to you that even in American Christianity, there was an extraordinary religious unity prior to a certain time in our collective history where we decided we'd quit talking about theology and quit talking about the Bible and what it teaches. And we would say to things like, what's important is, is your own personal relationship with God. That's what's important about how you and Jesus relate as a, as a, as a relationship. All of which, by the way, is very true, except for the fact that I don't know who it is that I'm relating to without the truth. The beast that comes up from the land comes from within. He deceives. And he comes against those who look and say, can't we all just get along? And says, exactly. And now we have multiple versions of Christianity in our own world. This is a call, a clarion call. For a generation of Christians to rise up and say, it is time for us to go back to the shoulders of the giants who have gone before. To find the old paths and to see those kinds of theology, the meat that was there. That's what we're trying to offer you. So that's the big picture about the beast from the land. But there's a small picture. How can we individually apply this? Well, we have to figure out what in the world these numbers mean. Six, six, six. Six, And a shiver goes down everybody's spine, right? I am very much indebted for the next couple uh, minutes of, of discussion from uh, an audio uh, work by D.A. Carson, uh, um, a New Testament professor at uh, Trinity up in Chicago. Extraordinarily uh, a gifted man who helped me through this. D.A. Carson helped to explain to me that in the ancient Near Eastern world, listen very carefully, they had no distinguishing symbols for numbers and letters. Did you know this? Numbers and letters typically would serve the same function. Thus, the written equivalent for our letter A, perhaps, was not only the letter A, but it was also the number one as well. Does that make sense? Uh, the letter B uh, in Hebrew and Greek was the letter, was also stood for the number two. Uh, the letter C was three, and then so on and so forth, until they actually got to the number 10. And then right after 10, they went to 20 and 30 and so on. Now, what that means is, is that any word, any word in both Greek or Hebrew, not only had sort of the, uh, uh, the sense of the letter sound, how it sounded when you spoke it, but it also had a numerical sense. 
Okay? In other words, uh, you, you end up finding some archaeological uh, 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 sites that will have carvings on the wall. I'm not making this up. This is, this is absolutely verified. <laughs> that will say things like this. I love her whose name is 545. Literally. It's the way in which they would speak about each other. In other words, everyone's name could also be a number. You follow me? Okay, so here's the question. Who then is 666? You cannot believe the speculation that the church has had throughout its age on who the identity of the number 666 really is. In a couple of ways, there are initials to certain Roman emperors that will work. In my opinion, the most likely candidate is Nero Caesar. Caesar, the, the, the emperor of Rome, Nero. You have to use sort of a Hebrew uh, transliteration of his name, but it actually works out. When I was a child growing up in the 70s, I remember how many people used to talk about the fact that Henry Kissinger's name would actually add up to 666 in the process. Um, there's all kinds of people. I actually heard one pastor, when I was uh, pastoring in another place other than here, mention one time from the pulpit that he believed that if you, use, if you use the word computer, it also comes out to the number 666. The computer is the beast, right? Some people say that 666 is a triangular number for the number 36. That is, if you add up the numbers 1 through 1 plus 2 plus 3 all the way up to 36, you get the number 666. Um, some people look and suggest that 666 is sort of an obvious parody of 777. Things try to be perfect. Everybody tries to find the perfect description, but they never do. So what do you think? What, what, what's my opinion? <laughs> what do I think the answer to it is? Uh, I'm going with D.A. Carson. I have no clue. And I've stopped caring <laughs> for this reason. I think it's easy to eliminate some of the more ridiculous descriptions of what people think 666 is. And I think it's probable that even the first readers who read this book understood what it meant. But I don't think we know who it is anymore. I don't think we need to know who it is anymore. Because it's not the point to know the identity of the man. And Carson says that this is sort of the God-inspired wisdom of the thing. Because he's trying to say, deception... Deception from this beast, what does it do? It sneaks up on you. Sneaks up on you. You're not going to see it coming. This kind of error is not going to be the thing that you can see coming. That's the reason why. You see, God puts His marks, marks on His people. And the beast puts His mark on people as well. So you know what it actually ends up meaning? Everybody's got somebody's mark. Every one of us in this room is in possession of somebody's mark. That's what it's saying. I think what John is saying is, is when it comes to dealing with the God of the universe, the God depicted for us in the throne, there is no neutrality. Now look, now perhaps you'll understand how easy it is and how deceptive it is to run away from God using your religion. In other words, it's a deceptive way. We look and say, I can, it's so easy to make my religious duties, the things that I do, the exercises that I'm doing, the fact that I came to RUF tonight, that I can look at those actions and offer them up and say, see, see, look how good I am. And use those ideas as sort of leverage, leverage against God to garner favor on our behalf. 
My friends, you worship the beast from the land, from the land, when you assume that because of what you do, you're acceptable to God. Very simply. And my friends, these are the most miserably insecure people, always doubting their salvation, always begrudging obedience, always miserable when God asks them to do something. They secretly resent God's law. They're terrible at forgiving, always condescending. But in the heart of this passage, and what I want to finish with tonight is this, do you realize that Jesus is different? You see, the person and the work of Jesus Christ is neither the path of irreligion nor of religion. Jesus does not come to bring you religion as if a little bit of moral pruning could fix the problems that are wrong with you. But secondly, nor is Jesus coming to bring you irreligion as if throwing off the law of God could somehow take care of that gnawing sense that something inside of you is broken and you don't know what to do about it. No. (laughs) You see, y'all, in Jesus we find that our suffering at the hands of the beast from the sea, no matter what God's purposes are for it, they can never be punishment. They can never be punishment. The suffering that God's people go through are there because the divine physician is fixing you. He's doing surgery and they always have a purpose. And we also find that in His hand, we find that the deception that comes from the mark, from the beast, from the land, can never fully persuade those who are truly His. Isaiah 44, 5 says that written on the hands of the people of God are this inscription, the Lord's. He knows who belong to Him and who belong to Him fully. So here's my question. Where are you tonight? In whose service have you been languishing? Because both beasts are still with us. And service to either ends in an equal amount of destruction. But service to the Lamb ends in peace. It's just that simple. And it's a choice set before you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, grant us, we pray, new eyes. Because the book of Revelation is just that. It's a revealing. The curtain is pulled away from this book. And we see laid bare in front of us exactly what it is that you're doing. And exactly what it is that we're doing. Father, many of us have been through suffering. Many of us have been the perpetrators of suffering. And we have followed the beast from the sea. And our lives bear the scars from it. For those of you who are the beast, for those of us who are the beast victims, we're longing for your comfort that this would only be for a time and that you would bring about great benefit from it. But for those who are themselves inflicting the wounds of the beast, we pray, Father, for repentance, to turn away from those things. And Lord Jesus, when it comes to the beast from the land, we have nothing to pray but for help, for clarity, that we would return to Your Word in a way in which history has not in recent memory. And our land is scarred from it. And the beast has his way even with your own people by not even letting the people of God know what they believe. 
Lord Jesus, there will be no such healing unless your spirit falls upon this place. So as we sing tonight, would you accept, would you accept our words as praise? And would you take great joy in them? And in exchange, would you send your spirit to give us clarity, to be revealed the plot and the schemes of the beasts and of the dragon? Save us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.